Um, I also wanted to take a minute to thank those people that make all of this happen. And um, as a church planner, I tend to drive, drive, drive and not take um, many opportunities to stop and to rejoice. And everyone who does what needs to happen to make Sunday, especially folks who are up front. And so um, it, it may seem like the people who worship up front behind microphones, that it's as easy as, well, you're singing in the chairs, will just be miked and it'll just all go fine. And that's just not the case. Um, it's very difficult to be up front and to worship the Lord and to lead people in, in worship. And so very thankful for Justin, um, who leads that team, for Alana, who joins him um, on vocals, for Amy when she plays piano, for Jackie when she plays um, guitar, for Matt Wilbur we had up um, on backup guitar a few weeks ago. And um, I spent probably two years learning um, a board like that one, a soundboard, and um, every board's different. And so thank you to Robbie Patton and Joel Gillette and Matt Wilbur who do our sound booth um, back there as well. And um, I had a whole seminary class on how to do what Ted just did. And so when Ted was getting his PhD in, um, in rocket engineering, um, he, he, he is a rocket scientist. Um, I was in seminary class learning how to do what he did so ably. And so leading worship, even in, let's, let's confess together a catechism or pray, um, is no easy thing. And so you probably don't know how blessed you are as a congregation to have so many gifted people. And that's just the folks who are up here. Um, and so um, just, I, I want to give thanks where I can and, um, and, and let you know that there's a place for you to serve with the gifts that you have in the kingdom of God. This is, um, this is all of us worshiping together. I know it's one person up front and y'all out there, but this is us all together coming before our Lord. He's the audience of worship. And so we're coming this morning to our second part in our four-week sermon series about what it means to live healthy. And um, that word health is not a word that occurs very much, at least in and of itself, in the Bible, but it is a topic that our culture talks about a lot. And so we would talk about um, healthy emotional life or healthy relationships or being healthy physically. And so I wanted to take a topic that our culture thinks about a lot and provide some theological context. And so where we were last week, we looked at the overview of the Bible and we learned from Genesis and then a, a little look at John that health is fundamentally a worship decision. That when Adam and Eve decided to not worship the Lord in the garden, so death entered and that they truly died. They died in their relationship with God. They died in their relationship with one another. And they died in their relationship to creation, which one day would end in their physical death. Their hearts stopped working and, and all of that. And so what we said is that we would lay out in the coming weeks those three different aspects and how the Lord Jesus Christ brings life, not only life in new birth, but growing maturity in the way we understand the gospel and the way we're of use in the world. And so if Jesus brings new life and one day you will be in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus being perfectly healthy, made perfect in the full enjoyment of God with a body that works well, you are somewhere in between. And we want our progress to be is towards health. And we know that our primary relationship is with the Lord. And so I could talk to you about how to have a healthy relationship with your spouse. I could lay out six tips for having healthy conflict resolution. I could talk to you about having a healthy body and understanding how to have a diet and get enough sleep. We could talk about finances and how to have a budget and how to not allow creation to rule over you and the way that you spend. We could talk about addiction and I could sign you up for programs like AA, 
But in all of those things, if I'm not telling you that all of those are just band-aids, they're just temporary fixes for your heart's disconnect from the Lord, that I'm doing you no service at all. And so this week, what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the Lord and see what does healthy relationship look like with God? What does it mean to be reconciled through Christ? Now, I'm, I'm letting you all in my secret, and so I can't use this with you anymore, but one of the things I would do when I would meet with people for the first time and try and figure out where they are with the Lord is I would ask them a simple question and say, on a scale of one to 10, how spiritually healthy would you say that you are? Now, most people are going to answer around a six or a seven because they don't want the pastor to think they're in like really big trouble. They're not going to go around three. But if they go around 10, they're going to be, you know, I can't do that either because I know I don't have everything together. And so we end up at six, 6.2, 6.8, somewhere in there. And now the, the big question comes next when I say, why'd you rank yourself that way? And you'd be surprised at all the answers that I get. Uh, most of them actually being completely faulty ways of understanding your spiritual health. One of my nightmares that I have, that I've had through high school and all through college, um, is that I would study all night, I would show up the next day, and that the test would actually be on something I didn't study. I don't know if you have those similar, if you're a teacher, your students are having those, those nightmares. Um, and a lot of times, that's how we approach spiritual health with the Lord. We study all the wrong things, and we do all the wrong things, and then we get there for the test, and we wonder why we have such a dry and empty relationship with the Lord. We realize, maybe I'm studying the wrong things. So where we're going this morning, this is a little bit longer of an introduction than usual, but I have to, I have to jostle you a little bit um, to get you to understand where we are. And I'm going to start with a template that Jonathan Edwards used. Jonathan Edwards is one of the greatest theologians who've ever lived and an American. And so if you didn't know that, then you should know about Jonathan Edwards. If you've heard about Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his most um, famous um, sermon, um, you've only heard of a, a little bit of who he is and um, what he did. He lived in colonial America. Um, he has a ton of different works out, some great um, sermons, and was a part of the first great awakening in this country. And what happened during the first great awakening is he was in different spots where the Holy Spirit would move in amazing ways and people would come to faith in God sometimes in very outward and volatile ways. And so it's said when he preached sinners in the hands of the angry God that people felt as if the floor was warm, almost hot when he preached about the threatenings and wrath of God in hell. That there would be times when people were so joyful that they would just break out into laughter in the middle of a sermon, which is very unpresbyterian. <laughs> that there would be times where people would have different parts of scripture just come to mind at significant moments to be a help and aid to them in whatever they were dealing with. And there were some people who looked at that and said, that's just, that's, that's no good. Th those, those are not good things. We can't have that happening. And then Jonathan Edwards would look at different sides, and if you're unaware, various um, bad aspects of revivalism, a lot of some bad charismatic stuff came out of that movement as well. And so Jonathan Edwards had people on either side critiquing what was a very valid and important movement of the Holy Spirit, bringing thousands and thousands of people to faith. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, and it's called Religious Affections. 
if you've heard of religious affections. And he was trying to speak to both groups about what it truly meant to be a growing, vibrant Christian. And you would expect to open the book and to read where he gets to, actually in the second or third part of the book, um, what actually religious affections are. And he goes from 1 Peter 1.9 when Peter says, well, you haven't seen him, but nevertheless you love him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. He gets there, but in the first half of his book, which is why most people don't read it because they get into it and have no idea why he's doing it, he goes through a number of things and he says this, there's this aspect of Christian living And it may or it may not be a sign of true religion or healthy living towards the Lord. And so he'll go through things and he'll say, oh, you're jumping up down with joy in the Lord, yelling at the top of your lungs. Like, eh, that might be pure and sincere joy in the Lord and what he's done for you. And then he'll say, but... It might just you being emotionally excited when you really haven't placed your faith in the Lord, and so you should beware. And so he goes through a number of things and saying, well, maybe, maybe not. And then he finally settles in and he says, well, this then is what you should look for. If none of those are a sure test to know about spiritual health, this is where you should be. And I'm not going to tell you what it was because I hope you read the book. Um, Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. But I'll go through a few things before we jump into Luke 18 of what people think. Some people think spiritual health is a rigid, disciplined study of the Bible and prayer and different things like that. It's the person who every year reads through the Bible. It's the person who maybe writes in their Bible. It's the person who has a, a prayer journal. It's the person who has prayer note cards. It's the person that never misses a Sunday. It's the person who is very rigid and structured in their, especially their personal worship to the Lord. And that may or it may not be a sign of spiritual health. Today, in rejection to that, some people think that having a very casual relationship with the Lord of no structure at all just you know go out into the woods and see what the Lord wants you to hear and pray and smile and wear Birkenstocks and if you're wearing Birkenstocks that's fine just a very casual light relationship with the Lord because after all if he's an intimate God then you shouldn't have an intimate relationship and we have to say that may or that may not be a sign of spiritual health There's some people who say you have to have deep and abiding and loud and happy emotional response to songs or the Bible or the sermon if it's going to be a real and true spiritual relationship. And so if you're going through periods where your emotions are not very aroused with the things of God, then you're obviously not near to him. And if you walk in and your hands are raised and you clap and you're doing all that, then obviously you're near to the Lord in May. Or it may not be a sign of spiritual health. For some people, they'll say, that's just a sign that you're getting yourself worked up. And if you're really communing with the Lord and having your mind renewed, then you're going to be as still as possible in worship because you're showing a reverence and an awe for whom God is. And so, you know, if you're Presbyterian, you worship with your hands in your pocket or whatever else it might be, and that may or that may not be a sign of true spiritual health. For some people, if you're very smart and you use big words and you can use a lot of theological language, 
then that is a sign that you are very spiritually healthy or the pastor knows what he's talking about. That may or that may not be a sign of spiritual health. And rejection to a very educated clergy in colonial America, especially within Episcopalianism, a lot of colonial Americans started to believe that the more educated their pastor was, the further away he was from the Lord. And so they thought if you come with a degree, a seminary degree, then you are not near to the Lord and you've just fallen prey to an empty intellectualism. And so the the little and the more lay understanding of who God is, is actually the more spiritually healthy. That may or may not be true. I know men who are very godly and gifted who don't have a seminary degree, and I have men who I'm not sure if they're converted who do. So that's not a place to look for spiritual health. Um, Lastly, or second to lastly, how long you've been a Christian. Some people think that if you're above the age of 60 and you're a Christian, then you're obviously both spiritually healthy and mature. I've known 16-year-old girls who are far more spiritually mature than 72-year-old men. Not necessarily. Lastly, some people think the, the more you go to church, the more spiritually mature you are. So within a lot of my Baptistic circles, um, if you grew up in a, especially a Southern Baptist church and you were a guy and you were there through your teen years and you were still there in your mid-20s, then you were obviously being called to the ministry and should go to seminary simply because you were still there. That may or may not be a call to um, the ministry. And so I wonder as we joke and I prod a little bit and step on your toes and maybe offend what you think about spiritual health, I wonder if any of those strike you where you are. I wonder if any of those are how you're trying to cram for the test, but you keep waking up the next morning and finding that none of that is actually on the test when it comes to spiritual health, when it comes to growing in right relationship with the Lord. So where we're going this morning, we're going to take a a little dip into three different passages, and we're going to ask ourselves what it means to be in right, growing, healthy relationship with God. And so we're going to look um, at Luke and Jesus talking about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's going to be a parable. And then we're going to jump jump into Corinthians, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul talking about right relationship with the God. And then we're going to jump into Galatians and hearing Paul again talk about right relationship with the God. And so that's where we're going this morning. Um, I'm finally back to the word of our God in Luke 18, um, verses 9 through 14. If you're in your Bibles, you want to follow with me on the screen behind me. This is the word of our God. Jesus also told this parable. This is key to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Our next text is from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then our last verse from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through Christ. Let's pray before we consider these texts. Father, we love you. Um, We would come in now to your word and into worship by prayer as if we would come into a doctor's office and we're coming for a checkup. We ask that you would give us insight into where we stand with you, not just whether or not we are in you, but in the ways that you want to mature us in Christ and our growth and grace. And so come and help us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. We would be a people that repent often and praise you for your glory and work in us. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, we'll stop briefly into um, to each of these sections as we consider um, the three different parts, um, three different verses that we looked at this morning and make some concluding remarks about what it means to be healthy um, with the Lord. Um, we'll start off in Luke 18 and we'll simply look at those two prayers that Jesus gives in a parable. These are not two real guys. He's telling a story um, to illustrate a point and Luke narrating it gives us the point that he's trying to illustrate that there are some people who trust in themselves for their own right standing with God, and that leads them to have contempt on others. And so Jesus told a story to get to the heart of that. And so he tells first the prayer of a Pharisee, that this Pharisee comes in, he stands close to the front. Uh, If you're close to the front, at least in the temple, you are nearer to the presence of God for a Jew. And so it tells you a little bit about what that Pharisee thought about his right standing before the Lord. And what I want you to see first from the prayer that he prayed is that he prayed a theologically accurate prayer of thanksgiving. To some degree, there was nothing technically wrong with what he prayed. He addressed God and he thanked God that God had given him in his own perception, a good deal of outward morality and piety. Mark that 
he hadn't committed adultery, he hadn't stolen things from people. God apparently had led him to be very generous, that he tied to the various things that he went. If, if we were to go on with the illustration, you know, he comes in, he's on the setup team. When he's done with the setup team, he knows that we currently have a need in the nursery. We have a need in the nursery. And so he volunteers back in the nursery. He sticks around afterwards. You know, he's not only tithing, he's going beyond 10%. You know, this guy is really involved. He's an upstanding guy, the kind of guy you want in your community group. You know, his requests are going to be like, no, you don't need to pray for me. Everything's fine in my life. You know, tell me what your needs are, and I will pray for you. And I'm just so thankful that God has given me such a blessed life. He didn't say anything wrong. There are some things that he left out, but what he said wasn't technically wrong, and he was unaware in praying a theologically accurate prayer that he was actually not right before God. And I'll wager, based on what we read in the Gospels, that there were other people who would look at this man who was in this parable and also would assume, based on his prayer, they could overhear his prayer, that he was in right standing with the Lord. And so before we go to the tax collector, we have to hear Jesus saying all of those things. May, may not be a sign of right standing with the Lord. Now Jesus will not condemn any of those things as wrong. He won't say, hey, you shouldn't be thankful to the Lord. Hey, you shouldn't look at your gifts. Hey, you shouldn't strive for morality and upright living. Hey, you shouldn't strive to be faithful to your wife. Hey, you shouldn't strive to be just in your business. Hey, you shouldn't strive to give your money. All of those things are fine things, but here Jesus is telling us that those things alone are no sure sign of whether you're healthy or right with the Lord God. Does that not give you pause for a moment? How many of you, if I had asked you, why do you put yourself at a 6.2 on the scale of health, might mention some of those things? How many of you need to hear Jesus say, maybe? Maybe not. And so then Jesus flips to a tax collector. Um, We've talked about this in the Gospel of Luke. If you wanted to know what a tax collector was like in those days, you should take two things in our culture and kind of stick them together. Um, The first is an IRS agent. Um, They typically are not very pleasurable. We don't think, you know, I want to have a dinner party. Let me invite an IRS tax agent. Not only like bad in their business, but I just don't want to be around them. Um, Whether or not they're right standing people or not, there's just this cloud of ick kind of surrounding the IRS um, and all the money that they take. On the other side, um, we have that we see um, terrorists, and you think even homegrown terrorists. We recently saw one of the men who was killed in Iraq fighting for ISIS um, was an American, actually, who had gone um, and joined the forces of the Islamic Islamic State um, in Iraq. I'm doing horrible things. And you think a, a home, a, a, an American wanting to go do that. Well, if you take IRS agent and you, you wet it together with domestic terrorist, you get what a tax collector was like in Jesus' days. Um, they were told by the Roman government, you can collect money, but we're not going to pay you. Your pay is whatever you collect in addition to what you owe us. And you can demand from whoever you want, however much you want, but you have to make sure we get paid and whatever is extra is yours. 
So you can imagine the kind of temptations you would face if you go to your buddy and you could charge him 10 bucks and give 10 to the government or 15, keep five for yourself or charge 20 and keep 10 for yourself or you charge 110 and keep 100 for yourself or you could see where things would go. And so tax collectors weren't known to be reputable people. When Jesus said this tax collector is here praying, the first thought would be, why in the world is he even in the temple? He's even belong there by the assumptions we make of his morality. Now, neither is Jesus saying that this, is a, this guy in and of himself is doing horrible things. He's just getting you to think, I assume because of his vocation that he is not right with God. And then instead of placing him in the front, Jesus places him in the back. And so I remember in my chemistry courses, I would sit in the back when I was a bad student. Listen, students, when I was a bad student um, and I did not get enough sleep and I'd bring my ball cap in and would sit in those chemi- the chemistry building at UVA and be able to fall asleep in the back because you want to stay in the back where you can kind of not be seen um, but still get points for showing up to your class. And so here's this back row um, tax collector sitting in the very back, standing afar off, so torn up over his sin and all he's done that he's beating his breast. Jews are very expressive people. They would beat their breast. They would tear their clothes. At times they would rip out their beards when they were, they were upset. That's not figurative. They would really do these things. And so he's in the back, torn up about his sin, banging on his chest. And you wonder, wow, what did that guy do this week? What kind of awful, horrible sin did that guy commit? And then as he prays, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the most poignant moment of Jesus' parable, and he says, that guy went down to his house, righteous, justified, reconciled to God. And it flips all of our categories about how we think right standing with God is made, earned, kept. Because that guy looked at God and instead of seeing someone who had given him a lot of good gifts and made him such a great guy, that guy looked at the Lord and thought, I really hope that God is merciful because I have a ton of lack in sin. And I'm hoping that from his end, he will give me mercy, that he will give me forgiveness, that he will give me love, and I've got nothing to give in return. I'm hoping on his mercy alone for right standing. And Jesus said that is not a may or a may not. That is a crucial component of right standing with God, that you approach him as a sinner and that you ask for his mercy. And that's the first thing that we see about right standing with the Lord. We desire him to be a merciful God and we want to avoid situations where we're looking at him simply as a good gift giver or comparing ourselves to other people to try and figure out how right we are with the Lord. The tax collector compared himself with God, said, I'm a sinner, he's God, I need mercy. Not, I'm a pretty great guy. And if the Lord's picking kickball teams, I'm being picked first. The tax collector's thinking he's last and way out. And so the first thing to know about Christians as if they are right with the Lord and are growing with the Lord that they are understanding God's mercy. As I've had time to minister to older saints, um, especially older saints that are dying 
Um, I've had, I've had you know, been able to minister to a lot of, um, I guess ladies tend to last longer than men. And so a lot of them have been older ladies in their 90s, just godly Christian women. Um, it's amazing to me that as old and as wise and as mature and as godly as they've been, the ones that I've known, they haven't been aware of it at all. They have been only more and more aware of their need and how they fall short and how much they rely on God's grace. You'd think the older you get, the more you'd kind of start praying things like the Pharisee. I mean, when I was in my, I was in my teens, like not so good, but you know, in my 30s. And so starting to see a little bit more progress, starting to be a little bit better person. And what's actually we see in life and in the Bible is the more you grow closer to the Lord through age or just nearness and understanding of who he is, the more you're aware of your own sin and lack and need. And the more you're pushed to cry out for mercy, the more you're pushed to cry out for mercy. And so that's the first thing you look for when it comes to being healthy and right with the Lord. It's one of the things you look for in other people. Because if I could go back and make one more point while I'm being brief. um, The prayer that the Pharisee prayed is given with Jewish language, but it's very common in most every religion. So a Muslim, using Muslim language, might be able to pray the Pharisee's prayer. Thank you so much that you've made me a righteous man. Allah, I don't thieve or cheat or anything else. I do all of the different things about Islam. I'm a Buddha, different religions. There's nothing particularly unique about it other than the type of language they're using. And I want to push you in your Christianity. I do do this a lot, and especially doing men's meetings and things like that, Um, and we're talking about stuff. I'll, I'll pause and say, could a Muslim pray that? Could a Muslim listen to that and agree with it? If so, we have a problem. Because we, can't, we might call it moral. We might even call it generally religiously pious. We can't call it Christian. And so what you see in here is Jesus getting the heart to the uniqueness of Christianity that we have found forgiveness of sins with God and a God who is merciful to us, not based on our works, but based on what Christ has done. So our relationship is one of mercy and not one of look at all the great things I've done. Good. Moving on. 2 Corinthians um, 5, if you want to go there or follow on the screen um, behind me. I want to to go into just two facets. Like I said, each of these is probably three sermons each. Um, But I'm going to dip into this one, and you're going to see the Apostle Paul say two things, two key words that you could go to Martin's right now, and, and don't look at the magazines for obvious reasons, but if you looked at the magazines and the words that are on the magazines, the kind of things that magazines are selling, or if you were to look at Amazon and the top book sales right now at Amazon, you're going to see two themes repeated over and over again. How can I have control in my life? How can I have freedom in my life? If I wasn't a Christian, I could make a ton of money. I would just over and over and over again write books about nothingness, just saying, this is how you get control, buy my book. This is how you can get freedom, buy my book. And a lot of people do. I was willing to lie to people about where those things are found. The Apostle Paul says where those things are found. And he says first about control. And which of you would like to have self-control? How many of you look at your lives and think, enough of self-control? I have have reached the pinnacle of self-control. I'm moving on to a different virtue. I wonder how many of you want that in your lives. The Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. It's an amazing statement. 
I know some of you are English teachers. I've always promised you I won't do Greek grammar unless it's really important. And so you're going to have to rely on that promise right now. Um, there's a question here in this text, the love of Christ. It's actually a genitive, and it can either be a subjective or an objective genitive. And I'll give you an illustration to show you what I mean. I could say, I have the knowledge of Einstein. And I could be saying one of two very different things. I could be saying, I have all that Einstein knew and that I know particle physics and all the different things that he knew. I have the knowledge of Einstein. That's treating knowledge as an object. But what if I said to you, I have a knowledge of Einstein, and I mean rather I've read every biography there is to know about Einstein. I actually know Einstein, and Einstein is the object that I know. So I may not know anything about particle physics, but I know about his life. We're the same question here about the love of Christ. Do I have the love of Christ in that, that Christ loves me, and that that's a part of what I have, and I understand that, or do I have a love of Christ in that I love Christ, and that I love him as the object of my faith? And this takes a very advanced seminary degree to get this. Whenever you run across this question in the Bible, you'll see it a lot, the answer is always both. It's both of those things. We are controlled by the fact that Christ has loved us apart from anything that we have done, that he has decided in time just to say, that one. I'm going to love that one. So that when we come and we say, not just, why me, Lord Jesus, but we say, thank you so much, and I can't repay you, but I'd love to try. And I would love to live my life in honor, I would love to live my life in response to this person that has loved me so much. And not only that, that I now have a love for him, that instead of looking at Jesus like people who are not Christians do and either yawning at him or being angry at him by God's grace, I've been enabled to love him with all of my heart as sinful as it is and to proclaim that for the rest of my days and all eternity, I want to sing his praise because I love him. That's where you get control from. That's where you get self-control from knowing whom you've loved and stepping into the love the Holy Spirit has given you in your hearts for him. If you want to have victory over sin, if you'd like to grow in your knowledge of your Bible, it is not going to come from your white knuckles. It's going to come from your Christ-gripped heart. It's not going to come from looking at the toolbox you have of all of the things you're able to do or know or the places you're able to be. It's going to come from looking at the Lord God's toolbox and finding in it a cross and an empty tomb where God has declared his love for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-control is not fundamentally about self. It's about looking at Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul. And he, he goes on in that text to say that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How much would you like that? To no longer live for yourself. Do you not have moments? I've had moments this past week where I've looked at myself and said, the reason there's so much suffering in my life right now is really because I'm just so big about myself. I end up sabotaging myself with my own selfishness and thinking about myself. There's just so much self, self, self all the time. 
how could I find some way to think about myself less? Because when it comes down to it, you never have to ask someone who number one is when you tell them to look out for number one. If I say, you go, out, go look out for number one. Like, well, who is he? I'd love to look out for him. Where are they if I'm going to look out for number one? We are hardwired to love, protect, rely on, and focus on ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says you can actually find freedom knowing that one has died for you and that he died for you so that yourself and what yourself can accomplish is no longer the key ingredient to your right standing with God. So freedom comes from finally being able to say, I have found Joe to be very unreliable, and so I'm going to stop relying on him for my happiness, and I'm going to start looking to Jesus, who I have found much more reliable. And when I'm questioning whether or not he can love me, I'm going to look to his death that he loved me that much to give his own life for me. And I'm going to find there at the cross, an empty tomb, a reminder again that I didn't suffer on the cross bearing an eternal weight of sin. And if I were to die, I certainly would not hop out of that grave showing victory over sin, death, and the devil. Only one person's done that, and I'd rather his, my eyes be on him than me. For as long as you're looking at yourself for right standing with God, you will be captivated, enthralled, and chained to yourself. You will find yourself in morbid introspection about what you're doing and what you're not doing, about what you're feeling and what you're not feeling because you're looking to yourself to find out if you're right with God and you desperately want to be right with God. And God has called you to take your eyes off yourself through the death of Jesus and look at his finished work on the cross and to find in him wholeness and come to him in worship and be freed by his love. It's a very different way of looking at spiritual health than what the world will show you. I mean, it's what the Christian science does, which is very goofy. Christian science is actually a scaled kind of Ponzi scheme, if you've ever been involved in Christian science. And what they'll do is they'll give you a test. In the course of your test, they'll tell you different virtues that you fall short in. So we've had to test, and you know what? You could be more loving and less selfish, and you really need to work on faithfulness. Here's our course for $100 on those different courses. Take the courses, retake the test. Spend your money, you take the test, you take the test again. Well, we found that actually you've made some good improvements in faithfulness and love and a lack of selfishness, but now we really see that stewardship's a big issue for you and we need you to grow in some of your knowledge of the different finer wisdoms. This course is $200 each. Take our course and then retake the test. They do it over and over and over again. They're constantly getting you to look at yourself find need and lack, and then to give money in the hopes of actually filling in that need and lack. They're playing on the common human experience of being a sinner, and they're making money off of it. And Jesus says, look to me. My faithfulness, my knowledge, my loyalty, my love, my completed work on your behalf, and find in me happiness, joy, freedom, and a love that brings a control the world can't even provide getting close to. So, second text, control and freedom through Christ. Third one that we get to, and this is Galatians 4. Um, I'll read the second half, and um, we get to, in this, it, he says, and I want you to notice it's Trinitarian. Um, we are Trinitarians. We believe in the Trinity. Um, we can 
we can talk about Trinity stuff more. A lot of people think the Trinity, because some people find it confusing, is kind of this truth that we keep in the back and don't really tell me people much about. It's kind of so confusing that we shouldn't bring it up much. The um, Bible is actually the opposite. The Bible puts the Trinity everywhere and especially puts the Trinity in places that matter at personal devotions and how you feel about God and how you should know God's nearness. And so you're going to see it here in this passage where the Apostle Paul says that God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in this text where the Apostle Paul is giving a declaration about what has happened in you and setting forth what it means for you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. So if we started with understanding the mercy of God and what he's done for us in Christ, if we get secondly to finding control and freedom from thinking about myself so much, now we step into the, actually the fundamental activity of the Christian, and that's rejoicing in the communion that we have with our Trinitarian God. So we see Jesus as the one who has given himself for all of our sins, the one upon whom God has laid wrath and judgment and has finished it in full for you and provided a perfect record of righteousness. So if you look at any area of your life and you find yourself beating yourself up with guilt, not thinking you're a good enough prayer, or despite you hearing a sermon about self-control, still not finding enough self-control, or just being discouraged and depressed, or actually sinning outright and wondering how in the world could I do that, and thinking, how could I be right with God? How could I still grow in health with the Lord? The Lord God would say, look at my son Jesus and what he's accomplished for you. Through your union with him, you now have all of the rights and privileges of the sons and daughters of God. The inheritance of the Lord is yours. The blessings and riches of the heavens of heavens are currently your possession. God is delighted with you and sings over you through Christ. You think, well, that's great and wonderful. What actually happens to me? And God the Father says, oh, it gets better. I have sent not only my son to atone for your sins, who currently is raised from the dead and is seated at my right hand, where Jesus' body is currently. I have placed the Holy Spirit within you to convince you that your identity is not just of a blood-bought sinner, but that you are a dearly loved son or daughter, and that I want you to live a life understanding that your fundamental relationship with God is of a child, loved, welcomed, provided for, prayed over. And that Holy Spirit will enable you to cry out, Abba, which is Jewish for daddy, Hebrew for daddy, daddy, father. If you hear someone praying, and you want to know whether it's a Christian prayer or not, listen for the word Father. Because Christians are the only people crazy enough to believe that we could pray to the God of the universe, God Almighty, righteous and just, forgiving no sins, and that we could call him Father because Christ has paid for our sins through his atonement, that we are sons and daughters of the Lord God. 
So if you want to know what it means, if we could focus on some things of what it means to grow as a healthy Christian, understanding the mercy of God, finding in Jesus a captivating love that both controls and frees us, and that we walk out into Bible-informed Trinitarian prayer as dearly loved children at every moment going to our Father, asking what He would have us do next. Now, the tension that you're experiencing right now is, Joe, I really want you to tell me what to do. Do I need to do more or do I need to do less? Do I need to do anything at all or do I need to do everything? Please tell me what I can do. And what you'll find in the New Testament is that the New Testament doesn't answer that question, at least not specifically. People look at the means of grace and some people think there are three and some people think four. Some people go through the New Testament and look for spiritual disciplines and some people find 14 and some people will find six. Some people look at the gifts of the Spirit and some people say, well, there are 20 and other people will say there are nine. The Bible doesn't answer that question for you because the Bible wants to withhold from you the kind of checklist Christianity that passes for spiritual health. Just tell me what I can do so I can wake up in the morning for 30 minutes and do it and then be about my day and know that I'm right with the Lord. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be like that Pharisee. I want to protect you from that. If you want to know what right standing with the Lord means is understand the God who is listed in this Bible, described in this word. Go to him knowing he's been merciful to you in Christ. Call out to him as God and Father through your Savior Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and ask him as your Father, what would you have me do? And know based on his character and what he has taught you and is teaching in your word that it may be different for you. Maybe the Lord wants you to read through the Bible in a year. Maybe you are convicted by the Holy Spirit that you just don't know enough about God and the ways of the Christian. And so what the Lord is calling you to do for health is to grow by learning his ways listed in the Bible. For some of you, it might be you just don't sing enough. And what the Lord is calling you to do is sing during the week and not just half-heartedly on Sunday morning. For some of, you, some of you, you have zero self-awareness. You are just oblivious um, to your actions and how they affect other people. And his spouses are like elbowing people right now. And what the Lord wants you to do is just to start journaling and just figure out who you are, what are your besetting sins, so you can ask for forgiveness. For some of you, you had a long-standing bitterness that you not only have endured but have cultivated because you are unwilling to forgive that person and you keep repeating their offense against you over and over again, hoping it will give you life. And as you pray to your Heavenly Father and the forgiveness you've received from Jesus, he's just saying, I want you to forgive them. Spiritual health is way more easy and way more hard than we think. I know people who would much rather read R.C. Sproul's whole collection than forgive somebody of their sins. I know other people who would much rather sing during the week than read a theology book and grow in their understanding of who God is and become more biblical. I know some folks who'd love to be um, you know, in here but are just terrified about being in a community group. The fact of the matter is the Lord God is your faithful God and he's a loving father in control of all things He's not handing you a checklist. He's not giving you a to-do list. What he's saying, he's saying, come and be with me. Now, that's going to require a whole lot of obedience in your part. So don't hear me say, you know, pray, and then whatever happens, happens. 
He is your God and your king and your father, the one who has purchased you back from the grave. He has not purchased you to wander off on your own. He has purchased you for a reason and put you in his kingdom of safety where you will thrive and grow. But it starts by coming to him, saying, God, you've loved me. Have mercy on me as a sinner. Show me my life. Show me your word. Show me how you would have me step out in faith and show me the things that you would have me do. That's what spiritual health looks like. And it's completely different than most of what you get in Christian evangelicalism. And I'm hoping that we can start a little mini revolution for the sake of Jesus about drawing our eyes back to him and not our poor and lackluster performance and thinking that somehow that makes us right with the Lord. Probably offended you a good bit. Um, the whole Bible is really about being healthy with the Lord. And um, if you have questions, as in all of these um, parts in the sermon series, I would love to tell you more about them. I would love to recommend some things that you could do, even books you could read, people you could talk to. Um, so don't hesitate to come and ask me, um, hey, Joe, I understood this, but not that. Those are fun conversations for me. I want to pray, and then we can continue to worship um, our Trinitarian God and the mercy and love he's given us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the ways you've loved and forgiven us through Christ. I pray, Lord, for the folks here that you would give